One of the most comforting doctrines in all of Scripture is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. When you understand what the Bible tells us about God's absolute sovereignty, and you begin to think about the implications that that has for all of our lives and every detail of our lives, as Christians, you can't help but be comforted and be encouraged by that. When you think that this God, the true God, who is sovereign, is our heavenly Father, that He has given up His one and only Son who shed His blood to redeem us from sin, who has sent His Spirit and His Word into the world for us to learn about ourselves and about the world and about Him to reveal Christ in us. How can you not be full of comfort and encouragement? The very first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism summarizes this for us in the way that it sets forth this relationship that we have with this God. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Scripture teaches that God is sovereign. He's sovereign in creation. He created all things for Himself, by Himself, without any help outside of Himself. Everything that exists owes its existence to God. Everything that happens in God's created world is under His control. And the salvation that He gives to people like you and me, He gives it in such a way that we who experience it owe it completely to Him. We unashamedly believe these things about the sovereignty of God here in this church. And we preach them and we seek to live in the light of this revelation from Scripture. But do you realize that believing in the absolute sovereignty of God sets you up for some real dangers. There are temptations that come with believing in God's sovereignty. Sadly, church history is littered with stories of people who have fallen into those temptations and have been overcome by those dangers. People who have gone astray while holding firmly to the absolute sovereignty of God. They've done so because they've let the truth of God's sovereignty lead them to faulty conclusions, wrong conclusions about personal responsibility. Here's the way that some people erroneously let their minds run as they try to tease out what they think are the implications of God's sovereignty. They say, well, if the only way that a person can experience salvation from God is that God must do it all. His power, His grace must work. He's sovereign and nobody gets saved unless 
He saves them, then it really doesn't matter what we do. If God's the one who does it all, then what responsibility do I have? If I'm completely dependent upon God, then I'll just wait. And If He saves me, He saves me. Or if that person is going to be saved, he's going to be saved. And so it doesn't matter what I do or what I don't do. Now that sounds logical, doesn't it? It sounds reasonable on some level. The premise is true. God is absolutely sovereign. But the conclusion is false. God is sovereign, but his sovereignty in no way diminishes our complete responsibility. We've looked at this in previous weeks as we studied through Romans chapters 9 and 10. We see in these chapters especially how Paul integrates the sovereignty of God with human responsibility. Let me remind you of the thesis that Paul is addressing in this part of his letter. In Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul is bent on demonstrating to his fellow Jews as well as to Gentiles that God's promises have not failed. God's word has not failed. He states his main concern in verse 6 of Romans chapter 9 in these words. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. God made some incredible promises to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament era. Things that he said he was going to do for them and with them. And Paul, in the first century, seeing many Jews not believing in the Messiah, their Messiah who has come in fulfillment of those Old Testament promises, is determined to help them see, God hasn't failed you. The word is true. You've misunderstood those words. God never promised to save Jewish people just because they are Jewish. Rather, He promised to bring salvation through the Jewish nation to the whole world, including Gentiles. God never has encouraged any sinner to seek salvation by keeping the law. He's never promised any sinner that you can be saved by keeping the law. That's true for both Jew and Gentile. Why? Because no sinner can keep God's law. We can't do what God requires of us. The law shows us that requirement, but it provides no help in meeting the requirement. The righteousness that the law demands has only been fulfilled by one man. That's the man Christ Jesus. And God sent him into the world so that sinners might benefit from his righteousness. And we get the righteousness that Jesus earned, not by doing things, but by trusting him. God saves sinners by grace through faith. Which is really just another way of saying that God is sovereign in salvation. It's all his work. It is not our work. From Romans chapter 9, verse 7, all the way through verse 29, Paul makes this point over and over and over again, illustrating it, supporting it 
by appealing to Old Testament scriptures. God is completely sovereign in salvation. Then in verse 30 of chapter 9, he begins to argue from the standpoint of human responsibility. And we read language like pursuing righteousness, how we must pursue righteousness. It's something that we're obligated to do. He writes about how the Gentiles attained righteousness. It's their responsibility. And the the Jews, because they sought it the wrong way, thinking they would attain righteousness by doing the commandments good enough, failed to attain it. As we saw last week in chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, we are responsible before God. We're responsible to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead. We are responsible to call upon the Lord because everyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. God is sovereign. But brothers and sisters, friends, you and I are absolutely responsible. Today as we pick up with verse 14 of chapter 10, which is our next section of this letter, we're going to see Paul continuing to press home the importance of human responsibility, especially for those of us who already have the gospel. Those of us who already confess Christ, who already believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and are experiencing the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Our text for today is Romans chapter 10, Verses 14 through 17. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you in the backs of the seats there, you'll find this on page 946. 946. I want to encourage you to get a copy of God's Word. Get these verses in front of you because we're just going to look at them. We're just going to read through this passage and we're going to zero in on a portion of it this morning and try to understand to the best of our ability what the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Spirit of God to write for our benefit. So I'm going to begin reading in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. We'll read down through verse 17. So hear the word of the Lord. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. In order to call upon the Lord for salvation, people must hear of Christ and hear from Christ. Verses 14 through 17 are Paul's further explanation of the point that he has just made in verse 13 that Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If a person must call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved, then how does that work? How does anybody come to call upon the Lord? Paul answers that question by giving us a series of four rhetorical questions in verses 14 and the first part of verse 15. He follows this by two Old Testament citations in verse 15 and 16. And then he gives us a summary statement of everything he's just said in verse 17. These questions build on each other. But note that Paul, in verses 14 and 15, 
gives these questions to us in the reverse order from which a person would actually experience the realities that he's writing about. William Hendrickson calls this line of questioning regressive, and he notes that it proceeds from effect to cause. Well, let's consider what is involved in calling on the Lord for salvation. We're going to do this by taking two weeks, so we'll do part of it today. God willing, we'll come back next week and do the second part. But I want to divide this text under four headings. The first is the nature of the process. We see that in verse 14, the first part of verse 15, with these questions, these four rhetorical questions. That's going to be our focal point today. We're just going to look at those rhetorical questions. And then, Lord willing, we'll come back next Sunday and continue by looking, secondly, at the nature of the preachers that Paul makes reference to in the latter part of verse 15. And then in verse 16, the nature of the responses to the message that is preached. And then in verse 17, the nature of the relationship between faith and the word that is preached. So today, we're going to look at the nature of the process whereby someone comes to call upon the Lord savingly. And there are five steps in this process. We see this in verses 14 and 15. These five steps are given to us in the four questions that Paul asks rhetorically in those two verses. Let me read them again, and I just want to highlight each one of those five steps. How then will they call, that's the last step, on him in whom they have not believed? That's the next to last step. And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So there we have five steps that Paul sets before us that go into someone coming to a right relationship with God, orienting their lives toward Jesus Christ. We want to take these questions in the order that they appear, and so take the steps in the order that they appear, even though Paul starts with the effect, calling upon the Lord, and then works his way back to the multidimensional causes that we will also consider. So look at verse 14. What does it mean? What is he talking about to call upon the Lord? Well, Paul seems to be referring to calling upon the Lord in a more comprehensive sense than believing in the Lord because he immediately says that in order to call, you must believe. And this idea of calling upon the Lord seems to include this orienting of your life around Jesus Christ. It certainly begins with that initial crying out from the heart, Lord Jesus, save me. Lord Jesus, I trust you. But it's not just that one-off experience. It's a way of living. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, in the way that Paul just kind of incidentally reminds those Corinthian Christians of who they are together with all Christians everywhere. There he says that they are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this place, we are people, Christians, who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. We are trusting Him. Our lives are oriented toward Him. We have said He is Lord, and we are His followers. We're dependent upon Him, and we are committed to live for Him. But note what Paul says in this first question. Before you can call on the Lord, you must believe in Him. How can they call on him 
in whom they have not believed. Believing in the Lord is the second of the process as they're outlined here regressively. To believe is not having a mere notion about Jesus. It is not merely intellectual belief like you believe in George Washington. I trust you all believe in George Washington, right? But you're not counting on George Washington to do anything for you. But intellectually, historically, you say, yes, there are things about George Washington that we can know and that we can say are true. Well, Paul's talking about belief in a different way. He's already mentioned the content of saving faith in verse 9. Look at that verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This faith is accepting what God says about Jesus as true. What the Word of God teaches us about Jesus. To have faith in Jesus is to acknowledge that and to agree with that. That He is Lord. He's God. He's the King. And that God raised Him from the dead. Which means He died. And came back from the dead never to die again. Such faith includes confidence in Jesus as the risen Lord. Dependence upon Him. Trusting Him in the same way you're trusting the chair you're sitting in this morning. If it weren't trustworthy, you'd all be on the floor. But you're counting on the chair to hold you up. So we count upon Jesus through faith. If you're going to orient your life around Jesus, if you're going to call on Him, then you must first believe that He is really who the Bible says He is. And there are many people who miss God at just this point, because they've never seriously considered the real Jesus. They're either ignorant altogether or else have made up a fantasy Jesus in their minds. It no longer amazes me to talk to people who say, yeah, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, I trust Jesus. And then as they begin to describe the Jesus that they know, love, and trust, he comes across like, you know, really... Nice guy. A guy who's kind of laid back and meek and doesn't bother anybody. In fact, a guy who, who likes to see everybody have a good time. Everybody be happy. Everybody not have things bad said or done about them or to them. And he's always on standby in case you get into a jam. Or if you need him, he's there. But he doesn't really interfere with your life too much. Several years ago, a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith gathered up a team of researchers to study this attitude that is so prevalent among Americans who consider themselves Christian in the United States who have involvement in religious activities. And so they put together this massive national study of youth and religion focusing in on the religious beliefs of American teenagers primarily. And when the researchers summarized what they found as a result of the research, they coined a new term to describe this religion. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Here's some of the basic beliefs of moralistic, therapeutic, deism. 
as they assessed it and presented it as a result of their research. One is, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Secondly, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Thirdly, the central goal of life is to be happy, to feel good about oneself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to solve a problem. Fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. Moralistic therapeutic deism is not the same thing as believing in Jesus Christ. You can have a Christ in your mind. You can have ideas about Jesus. But if those ideas are not coming to you from what God has said is true about Jesus, then you may very well be trusting, following, loving, thinking that you know a fantasy Jesus. If you're going to call upon the Lord savingly, you're going to have to call upon Jesus as he really is. The eternal son of God. Who became a real man. And lived a life of complete obedience to God's commandments. Earning righteousness. Human righteousness. Which God requires of every one of us. And then voluntarily laying down his life on the cross. Under the curse of God against sin. Doing so in behalf of sinners. Whom God then raised from the dead on the third day, never to die again. If you're going to call upon the Lord for salvation, that's the only Lord who saves. You must call on Him. But before you can believe in the Lord, you must hear Him. You must hear Him. This is the next part of this process that Paul sets before us rhetorically in verse 14. How can they believe in Him of whom they've never heard? It's obvious that you can't believe in somebody that you've never heard about. If you don't know they exist. No one will ever trust Jesus who has never heard of Jesus. That is true. It's absolutely true. But Paul is not merely saying that. I think that is included in what he's saying. But I believe Paul is saying something even more profound in this rhetorical question. It's put well, I think and accurately by the New American Standard Bible as it renders this question. And listen to the difference between this rendering and what we have in our English Standard versions. How will they believe in Him whom they've not heard? How will they believe in Him of whom they've not heard? That's true. You don't know about Him. But the actual way the grammar is here, the, the way Paul puts these words together in that Greek sentence the simplest reading of it is how will they believe him whom they have not heard? Paul is saying that when Jesus Christ is set before us, as he will talk in a moment about preaching, Christ himself is speaking to us. We're not just learning about Christ. We're learning from Christ. When the gospel of Jesus is accurately, clearly proclaimed, it's not the opinion of the preacher that you're hearing. It is Jesus Christ Himself. The very Word of Christ. In Luke chapter 10, 
Jesus gathers up 72 of his disciples and he's going to send them out into villages and towns ahead of himself. He's going on an evangelistic mission. He sends them on an evangelistic mission ahead of him. And he tells them to go and to preach the kingdom of God. To alert people that God's power is near them. And what he's talking about is the power that is in him as the one who will shed his blood for sinners and be raised from the dead never to die again. The kingdom of God is near. And in verse 16 of Luke chapter 10, Jesus says to these 72 evangelists that are about to go out, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Here's the point. Whenever any Christian accurately declares the good news of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, why that matters, the people who hear that message are not just hearing about Jesus. They're hearing Jesus. It is Jesus' word. They're hearing from Christ. Now that is a wonderful and weighty truth. Brothers and sisters, this message of salvation is not our message. We didn't come up with it. It's Christ's message. When we tell people who Jesus is as the eternal Son of God who became a man and what He has done, having kept God's law perfectly and earning righteousness and then dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, and then we begin to explain to these people why this is significant for their lives, We're not simply telling them about Jesus. We're actually speaking for Jesus. They're hearing from Jesus. This is amazing. What it ought to do for us, brothers and sisters, is make us bold and confident, even as it drives us to be careful and accurate. We must be careful that we don't simply start setting forth our opinions in the place of what the Scripture has to say. We should rather speak the words of God simply, clearly, with boldness and confidence. And we should do our best to get the message right. That's why we talk about becoming gospel fluent in this church. Fluent. So that we see it more clearly. We recognize it more immediately. We speak it more sincerely and accurately it's because we're fluent in it. And as we become fluent, we want to tell it to everybody we can. Now, some of you here this morning and you're not converted. You're not trusting Jesus Christ. I want you to know we're delighted that you're here. We hope you will keep coming. We want you to be here. Children, young people, some of you have not professed faith in Christ and you've not said you're converted if you are, and some of you are not converted. We want you to know we're delighted that God's put you in this church family. and We love you. We pray for you. But do you understand what Paul is saying here? Have you had the good news of Jesus Christ explained to you by a friend, a family member? You're having it set before you this morning. And do you realize what that means? Every time you have heard the truth about Jesus Christ and all that He has accomplished for sinners and your need of Him. You're not just hearing about Jesus. 
You're hearing from Jesus. Christ speaks through His Word. He's speaking through His Word this morning, not because of anything is going on with the preacher. To the degree that the preacher gets it right. Christ is speaking to you. Christ is calling you. Christ is saying to you, you must turn from your sin. You must trust in Me. You must be made right with God. And I am the only way. So, why would you not trust Christ when He speaks to you so simply, so clearly? It's not just a preacher you're rejecting. It's not the words of a preacher. It's not even truth about Jesus exclusively that you're rejecting. It's Jesus Christ Himself. The One before whom one day you're going to stand and give an account. And whatever else you might try to say on that day, you will not be able to say, well, on October the 10th, 2021, I didn't hear from you. Jesus will be able to say, no, I spoke to you that day. I set myself before you. I called you that day. And you sat there. And you were indifferent. And you resisted. And you would not trust me. Oh, friend. Trust Jesus now. He set before you in His Word. His Spirit has given us this Word. He Himself comes and proclaims to you His Word through the instruments that He chooses. But it is His Word. And His Word says, turn from your sin, trust Jesus Christ as Lord, and you will be saved. You call upon the Lord for salvation. This happens only as you believe in Christ. And you can only believe in Christ when you hear about Christ and you hear from Christ. And you're hearing about Christ and from Christ this morning. So trust Him. Trust Him. Before you can call on the Lord, you must believe in Him. Before you can believe in the Lord, you must hear Him. Verse 14 goes on to say, by virtue of a question, how are they to hear without someone preaching? Preaching. This word for preaching usually refers to an official proclamation. It's the word that was used for heralds in kingdoms whenever the king would issue a decree and then assign to the heralds the responsibility to go out to the villages and towns of the kingdom and to say, hear the word of your king. This is what the king is making known to you this day. The main consideration of Paul seems to be the formal preaching of the gospel. That's, again, the way we typically see this word used. If you want a good example, you can go to Acts chapter 8, verse 4 and verse 5, where the contrast between the official proclamation of the word and what Philip did when he went to the Ethiopian eunuch and others, and then what the believers did as they scattered from Jerusalem, also preaching, but in a, a more taking the gospel and just gossiping the gospel, you might say. So, this word would be specifically referring to duly called and appointed pastors 
teachers, evangelists, missionaries. <clears throat> and that's right. That's good. So I don't want to diminish that. But neither do I think Paul is limiting himself to those official capacities here. Any Christian can accurately proclaim the gospel to people by the power of God's Spirit. That doesn't have to happen officially, formally. You can preach the gospel if you're a child of God. You don't have to do it behind a pulpit. You can do it over coffee. You can do it over a meal. You can do it at a lunch break. What is of ultimate importance is, that, is the message that is preached rather than the person who's preaching it. And the message that is preached is the message of Jesus Christ. It's who He is. What He has done. Why that matters. So, how can people hear Christ if those who know Christ don't preach Christ? Look again at this order. In order to call on the Lord, you must believe in Him. In order to believe on the Lord, you must hear Him. In order to hear Him, Someone must preach. We'll look more at this next week. And for that to happen, they must be sent. That's what verse 15 says. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Preachers must be sent. John Calvin speaks for the broad Protestant Reformed understanding of the way salvation comes to people. He says it is normally through the proclamation of the word. He writes this, the gospel does not fall from the clouds like rain by accident, but is brought by the hands of men to where God has sent it. The emphasis again seems to be on an official commission by God. That word sent is the word we get apostles from. The apostles were sent out by Jesus Christ. They were commissioned by him those 12 apostles were his officially sent ones the 12 apostles served jesus in this kind of official capacity and together with the apostle paul later they were responsible to be part of the foundation of the new testament church sending people out officially is the way that god has worked throughout history we see this specifically in the old testament primarily with the prophets though not exclusively with them but you read the prophets in the Old Testament, you see the Lord raised them up, gave them his word, and then sent them to specific missions to proclaim that word. In the New Testament, we see the same thing with more prophets, New Testament prophets that continued in the train of those Old Testament prophets, but now joined together officially with apostles, specifically the 12 apostles, then later the apostle Paul. We read about this in Ephesians 4.11, where Paul describes the gifts that Jesus gives to his churches, prophets and apostles. Then he adds to that pastor, teachers and evangelists, evangelists being those who are like missionaries. And though we no longer have apostles and prophets in that official capacity, they have done their work. Their work is fulfilled. We have it inscripturated for us today. The work of pastors and missionaries to go and proclaim the apostolic and prophetic word concerning Christ continues on. And such people with those responsibilities and those offices are sent by God through the commissioning of local churches. We see this in Acts chapter 13, where Paul and Barnabas are set aside, they're set apart and commissioned by the church at Antioch to go into Galatia officially 
preaching Jesus Christ and planting churches. So that is certainly Paul's primary concern here. But again, we must not limit being sent in this capacity only to pastors and teachers and missionaries officially. In John 20, 21, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he looked at his disciples, not just his apostles, and said, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Brothers and sisters, as we know the Lord Jesus, one way we should think of our lives is that we are sent people. Where you are in God's providence. What you're called to be doing in your life at this moment. The good, the bad, the hard, the easy. You are where you are as you are having been sent by God. With the message of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission buttresses this as well in Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. That commission where Jesus tells us to go into all the world and make disciples. It's not just given to the apostles. It's given to the church. We're called by God. We're commissioned by God. We're sent by God with the gospel that has saved us. So what's the right response? To this calling that every Christian has to be sent people to live sent lives when you've got a stressful job that you've got to do in order to take care of your needs and the needs of those around you. When you're limited physically in ways that you never were in your earlier life. When you seem like you have so limited opportunities and limited resources with which to engage in making Christ known. What's to be the right response to hear this? How in the world shall they preach unless they were sent? You realize that as a Christian, you're called to live a sent life. What's the right response? Surely, brothers and sisters, isn't it to follow in the footsteps of Isaiah that we heard read earlier? When he heard the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah, freshly aware of his own inadequacies, said, Here am I. Send me. We must be crystal clear on this point. Nobody will be saved apart from hearing the word of Christ. Nobody will call upon the Lord unless they hear about Christ and they hear from Christ. And the only people who can make that happen are people who know Jesus Christ. The responsibility is ours. Unbelievers cannot call upon Him whom they've never believed. They cannot believe in Him whom they've never heard. They will not hear of Christ or from Christ unless someone preaches Christ to them. And no one will preach Christ to them unless they are sent to do so. That is true for the Sudanese Arabs in Saudi Arabia. It is true for your next door neighbor. It is true for your co-worker. It is true for your brother, your sister, your children, your parents. For the friend that you grew up with who's far from the Lord today. Brothers and sisters, who will go? Whom will the Lord send? 
Have you ever honestly prayed to God about this reality? And with Isaiah said, Lord, hear my. Send me. I know we all are concerned about unconverted people. We are as Christians, you can't help but be. But do you ever find yourself thinking, you know, if only somebody else would do it, if only somebody else would talk to this person, if only somebody else would would come and bring the gospel to my loved one. Here am I. Send me. To reject the preaching of the gospel is not just to reject the preacher or the message. It's to reject Jesus Christ himself. And if you refuse to trust Christ, if you walked into the doors this morning not trusting Christ and you're determined to walk out the doors today not trusting Christ, please recognize that you are rejecting Christ himself. As Christ has set his word before you this morning, through the the failures and frailties of the instrument, his word has been set before you. And if you leave without trusting him as Lord, you are rejecting him. And Jesus said, he who rejects me rejects the father who sent me. So trust Christ. Believe Christ. Call upon the Lord. As he's been set before you this morning, he will save you. Brothers and sisters, the implications of these verses are so clear. We cannot be satisfied to sit back and do nothing while people are still living without Jesus Christ. We must feel the weight of this truth and pray for the Lord to raise up from among our own membership those who will go to hard places where Jesus isn't known and commit themselves to live and to die for the sake of making Jesus Christ known. Young people, listen to me. Some of you are thinking about what to do with your life. You're trying to make your plans. You're thinking about school. You're thinking about job. You're thinking about marriage. Think about this. Has Christ revealed Himself to you? Are you trusting Christ? Are you willing to go to some place where Christ isn't known in order to make Him known? Who will go? Whom shall I send? The Lord says. Our prayer must be. It must be. Here am I. Lord, here am I. Send me. If they don't hear, they will never call upon the Lord to be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. And I ask that you would help us as a church to own our responsibilities in the light of this word. To recognize that we have friends, we have family members, we have neighbors that are living without Jesus. They will never call upon him in whom they've not believed. They will never believe in him whom they have not heard. They will never hear unless someone goes and preaches Christ to them. And no one will go unless they've been sent. And I pray that you would impress upon us as a church that we are sent people. Strengthen us, we ask, for this task. Give us joy. 
with the opportunities to stand and proclaim Christ, to share the good news of salvation. Own our feeble efforts to reveal yourself savingly to many. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.